Uh, We're going to read this evening from the book of Job. We are going to read from Job uh, chapter 33. Last time we were introduced uh, to a man named uh, Elihu, and uh, as we read about him uh, in chapter 32, he has been listening to Job uh, and his friends throughout their uh, back and forth uh, conversation. And so last time we uh, heard him uh, speak about his own uh, desire to speak uh, the truth uh, into the life of Job, and uh, we concluded that this this man really will be a better counselor uh, as he even prepares the way uh, for the Lord who is coming. And so let's pray together uh, as we go to the scripture. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you again that uh, as we've just sung together, unchanging Uh, is your word, that no matter what men and women might think they do to your word, critiquing your word or slandering your word, uh, your word remains the same, Uh, remains the same as it came uh, from your mouth in years of old, from the years, the lips of the Savior, uh, from the work of the Holy Spirit, and that we have that word again uh, before us tonight. And you have told us that you sanctify us by the truth, your word Uh, is truth, and so we thank you that whenever we have uh, the word before us, the word preached, uh, that this too is a means of grace for us, uh, that you use by your Holy Spirit, no matter what our age, no matter where we are in our walk with you, uh, that you use your word uh, to mold us and to shape us, to grow us into the likeness of Christ. And so bless us, we pray uh, tonight, as we again look to you uh, for your help, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the word of the Lord, uh, Job chapter 33. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I've heard the sound of your words. You say I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean, and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he's merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I found a ransom. Let his flesh become 
fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I'll speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, many years ago, uh, 70 years ago now, actually, uh, J.B. Phillips uh, wrote a little book called uh, Your God is Too Small in 1952. And uh, his book started this way. No one, he said, is ever really at ease in facing what we call life and death without a religious faith. The trouble with many people today, said Phillips, is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. While their experience of life has grown in a score of directions and their mental horizons have expanded to the point of bewilderment by world events and by scientific discoveries, their ideas of God have remained largely static. There are undoubtedly professing Christians with conceptions of God which could not stand up in the winds of real life for five minutes. But Christians are by no means always unintelligent, naive, or immature, said Phillips. Many of them hold a faith in God that has been both purged and developed by the strains and perplexities of modern times, as well as by a small but by no means negligible direct experience of God himself. They've seen enough to know that God is immeasurably bigger than our forefathers imagined. It's the purpose, he said, of this book, this little book he writes, to attempt two things. First, to expose the inadequate conceptions of God which still linger unconsciously in many minds, and secondly, to suggest ways in which we can find the real God for ourselves. I thought, uh, as I reread that earlier this week, I thought, that's a good kind of description of the book of Job. I think the book of Job, in many ways, is uh, wanting to, uh, to teach us something about God, to expose kind of our inadequate views of, of God, uh, and to show us uh, who the real God uh, really is. And clearly, Elihu believes that Job's God is too small. The words of Job are ended, uh, and the words of Elihu have just begun. And uh, Elihu's name, you remember, means he is my God. Now, we learned last time that Elihu uh, was ready to burst. Uh, his insides were ready to burst out. He had so much, he had so much to say because though he's been listening patiently, he's been deferring to his elders who should have known better as they sought to counsel their friend Job. He has something to say that must be said because he knows that uh, the Lord gives understanding by his, by his spirit. And, um, and he's going to say it because he's not, he doesn't really care what anyone uh, thinks of him except uh, for God. Uh, and it's his glory we found out that Elihu is concerned about. And so we concluded, well, as Elihu will have these four speeches before the Lord himself appears, Elihu kind of functions like an Elijah or a John the Baptist. He's kind of preparing the way 
for the Lord. And so we need to, we need to listen to what he has to say. First thing we find out in this uh, speech of Elihu, this is him now addressing Job, is uh, that he really says to Job, listen, Job, I am, uh, I am for you and, uh, and I am with you. I am for you and I am with you. Now, you may remember that uh, the last words of the three friends uh, were none too friendly to Job. Uh, Zophar, you might remember, chapter 20, verse 4 said this, Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Job said Zophar, uh, or, a life, or was that Zophar? Zophar, you are, Job, wicked and godless. That was Zophar's last word. Eliphaz, in chapter 22, this was his last word to Job. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men uh, have trod? They said, including you, Job, to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do uh, to us? Job, uh, you, you are wicked and you uh, are running from God. That was uh, Eliphaz's last words. Bildad's last words to Job, you might remember, were this. Uh, as he's speaking about man. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. And so that was Bildad's last word to Job. You are a maggot. Uh, You are a worm. So the last words of the three friends, friends to Job, uh, were not good, not encouraging. Now, in contrast, notice what Elihu says to Job, right at the end of the chapter, he says this, verse 31, Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I'll speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire uh, to justify you. Uh, I desire to see that, uh, that you're in the right. I want you to be uh, in uh, the right. Uh, I am for you. I want the best for you, uh, and, um, and I am for you, Job. But notice he is also with Job at the beginning of the passage, verse 6. Behold, he says, I am toward God as you are. I too, says Elihu, was pinched off from a piece of clay. It's an allusion to to Genesis and the creation of man. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy uh, upon you. I'm for you. I want want things to go well for you, and I am uh, with you. I too, says Elihu, was formed from the dust of the ground. I'm a creature just like you. I'm before God just like you. I'm no better than you. I'm not here to press you down and beat you down. I'm not superior to you. Uh, I'm also accountable to God, uh, Elihu uh, says. Uh, he, comes with, uh, he comes with humility to speak the truth to Job. Thomas Brooks, in his little book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, said this, humility will keep the soul free from many darts cast by Satan and from many erroneous snares spread by him. This is what he says, as low trees and shrubs are free from many violent blasts of wind which shake and rend the taller ones, so humble souls are free from those blasts of error which rend and tear proud, lofty souls. Satan and the world have greater difficulty to fasten errors upon humble souls. You know, it's hard for the wind to topple a bush, right, when you're down here. When you're way up in the air, like our palm trees or something like that, yeah, the wind will... So Brooks says, when you're lofty up here, you're going to get blown about. You're, not, you're, you're a, a target for Satan. But humility uh, is, is good for us, especially when we're seeking to speak the truth to another. 
And so uh, this is what uh, Elihu opens with. Uh, to Job, I am just like you. You don't need to be afraid of me. You don't need to be afraid of me. I'm with you. I am for you. This is so important. You might remember earlier in Job's talks, he, he would speak that he was terrified to hear from God. And uh, Elihu says, don't, don't be afraid of me. Um, I am for you. This is so important. To know that the one who speaks truth to us is just like us and is for us. I want the best for you, just like you, uh, accountable to God, says Elihu. That's so important. It's the difference, I think, between, for instance, a good parent and a bad parent. You know, a parent doesn't approach their children think, uh, giving their, their children the impression that they too are not under God. No, I'm a, as a parent, I'm a dad and I sin. And when I sin, I need, to, I need to repent, and my kids need to know that, just like you, just pinched off, from, pinched off from the clay, accountable to God. It's the difference between a good coach and a bad coach, a good leader and a bad leader. We are the same. A good Christian counselor and a bad Christian counselor, we are the same before God, you and I. I want the best for you, not the worst. I want to see you do well and thrive. So what Elihu says, I am for you and... I am with you. Now, none of that, of course, means that Elihu is not going to speak the truth. He is, and in fact, in these first couple of verses, you think, oh boy, he is really ready to burst, because we hear him speak this way. Listen to all my words, he says. Behold, I open my mouth, my tongue and my mouth speak. Well, go ahead and say it, Elihu. (laughs) You know, my word, and you know, he talks about all his words, uh, but notice he says, you know, what my lips know, they, they speak sincerely. They speak sincerely. So I've got a lot to say, Job. I'm for you, and I'm with you. First truth that Elihu wants Job to remember is this. God, uh, God is greater, Job, than you think. God is greater than you think. Uh, verses 8 through 13. Surely you've spoken in my ears. I've heard the sound of your words, Job. You say I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean. There's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. This is Elihu quoting Job or speaking for Job. He puts my feet in the stocks, watches all my paths. And then Elihu says, behold, in this Job, you are not right. You're not right. I will answer you, uh, for God is greater than man. Now, Elihu has a beef with Job. Elihu has not only listened closely to the three friends, he's listened closely uh, to, to Job. You say, said Elihu, I'm pure without transgression, I'm clean, there's no iniquity in me. Now, he's been listening closely, but he hasn't been listening, I don't think, closely enough. Uh, We know that, though Job certainly has been claiming to be blameless and not guilty, this is true, but when he does that, he is simply uh, claiming exactly what God himself and the narrator of this book of Job have already said about him. He has not claimed to be without sin. Uh, he is a sinner. We recognize that earlier, uh, early in the book, chapter 7, 21 and 13, 26. Job knows uh, he is a sinner. He's never claimed sinlessness, but he has claimed integrity. But nonetheless, Elihu has something else to say about Job's speeches, and that is, Job, this is what you've said to God, verse 10. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. That's not true. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this, you are not right. Clearly, Elihu is not telling Job, like his three friends did, that he's suffering 
because he has sinned, he's not saying that, or because Job's hiding sin or has secret sin or unconfessed sin, or as one of Job's friends told him, remember, that uh, you're suffering because your children sinned, and that's why they died, because they sinned. Uh, he's not saying anything like that, and he's not saying that, Job, you're suffering because you are, are wicked, but he is saying, Job, that in your suffering, you have sinned and saying sinful and, and wrong things about God. You're contending against him. You're demanding he answer you on your own terms and in your own timing and in your own way, and this, you're not right. Job, why? For God, he says in verse 12, is greater than man. Job, God is greater than you think. Job, says Derek Thomas, was innocent of any major sin, but this did not give him the right to charge God with injustice. Elihu is quite right in saying to him, and this, you are not right. Why? Because God is greater than man. He's beyond our understanding. In the hope of defending both God's justice and Job's innocence, Elihu wants to suggest that Job is suffering, not because of some past sin, but because God wants to warn him from committing sin in the future. That's what Elihu believes, to keep him from further sin, to keep him from trouble. In other words, God's ways are not our ways, is what Elihu's saying. He can never, that is, Job can never presume to fathom all that God does. God knows best. He's greater than you, Job. We must be prepared to come to the point, says Thomas, where we say, I do not understand why, but I believe that he does, and I accept it. That's the very heart of faith, to believe in God's love when everything is pointing in a contrary uh, direction. Elihu says to Job, first of all, Job, um, it's not right what you're saying. It, you shouldn't be saying that God is your, is your enemy. You may not know uh, why God has done what he's doing, but that gives you no right to accuse him, uh, no right to accuse him of injustice or uh, demanding that he respond to you in the way you believe he should. He's, he's greater uh, than man. He's bigger than you. He's, he's more understanding than you. You may not understand, uh, but you need to trust and know uh, that he does. Now, our problem, of course, is that we believe man is greater than God. Wrote C.S. Lewis famously, ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, folks living in our country today, the roles are quite reversed. Man is the judge, and God is on trial, or God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge, man. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is, said Lewis, is that man is on the bench and, and God is in the dock. In the LA Times, a number of years ago, an article uh, appeared with this title, Science and Religion. God didn't make man, man made gods. This is what it wrote. Before John Lennon imagined living life in peace, he conjured no heaven, no hell below us, and no religion too. Writes this author in the LA Times, no religion. What was Lennon summoning? For starters, a world without divine messengers, where critical thinking is an ideal. In short, says this writer, a world that makes sense. Then he writes this. In recent years, scientists specializing in the mind have begun to unravel religion's DNA. 
They have produced robust theories backed by empirical evidence, this writer says, including imaging studies of the brain at work that support the conclusion that it was humans who created God, not the other way around. And the better, he says, we understand the science, the closer we can come to no heaven, no hell, and no religion too. See, that's, the, that's what people believe, right? We are the creator. God is the creature. God is answerable to us. We are not answerable to God. Uh, you know what they call that in the medical world? Delusions of grandeur. I looked it up. Here's the definition from WebMD. It goes like this. Defined this way by WebMD. A delusional disorder is a serious mental illness where you can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not. Delusions or false beliefs come in several types. Delusions of grandeur are one of the most common ones. It's when you believe that you have more power, wealth, smarts, or other grand traits than is true. Even, <laughs> even says this, even some healthy people can hold unreasonably high opinions of themselves. Oh, really? <laughs> this is a, a medical journal. Even, even, even healthy people, says the doctor, uh, can hold high Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Christians say, yep. <laughs> we, sure, we sure do. Our problem is we believe man is greater than God. And a lie who says, listen, I'm with you. I'm for you. But you need to understand God is greater than you think. Or imagine, you know, Elihu wanted Job to overcome his problem of thinking that somehow uh, uh, that God uh, that he 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 could demand an answer from God. You see, God's greater than you think. The second truth that we find that Elihu wants to impress uh, upon Job is that God, in fact, Job, God, God is speaking, even when you don't recognize it. Notice what he says, verse 13. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? For God says, Elihu, God speaks in one way and in two, many different ways. Though, though man does not perceive it or understand it, you see. Now, what's Elihu saying? He's saying, Job, God is speaking to you. He is not silent. Now, he may not be answering you in the way you want or think he should, but that does not mean he is silent. That does not mean he's not at work. He speaks in many ways, says Elihu. The problem is we don't listen or we don't recognize his voice. Now, Elihu gives two examples of how God does this. In verses 15 through 18, he speaks of dreams, vision of the night, deep sleep, slumber, and he talks about what happens when, and those are all examples of man being completely passive. Um, I'm not sure, I don't think they were meant to make a hard and fast uh, uh, distinction here between different ways of God revealing himself, but more in all these examples, uh, the point here I think is that man is, is, is passive. And what's happening? Well, God is, God is warning man, God is warning man to turn him away, verse 17, from his deed and conceal pride from a man. That's simply a way of saying to keep man from pride. So God, is, God works in all sorts of ways uh, to convict us, uh, to warn us, uh, basically, of sin and to, um, 
to keep us from falling into, into greater sin and to keep us from becoming proud. Now, we know that's true because you might think of, for instance, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember, he was given a thorn in the flesh, and he said, I prayed three times that the Lord would uh, deliver this from me. But do you remember what Paul said about why he believed God had given him that thorn? He said, you know, God has given me this, this thorn that I might not become conceited. Right? That's another big word for, uh, for pride. You know, that Paul had, you know, he said he had seen great things of the Lord, but then he had this thorn in the flesh that, that he believes God gave that to him to teach him. God was speaking to him to keep him from, from growing in, in, in pride. And Elihu says, well, sometimes, uh, Job, sometimes the Lord simply speaks that way, convicting us of, of, of sin. So Elihu's not saying you're, you're, you're suffering because you're sinning, but in your suffering, the Lord might be revealing some sin. In, in your life. And uh, Elihu repeats this kind of gracious way and purpose of God repeatedly, hopefully you notice throughout the, the passage, saying about how God does these things to keep Job or to keep us from what? Well, verse 18, he keeps back his soul from the, uh, from the pit. Verse 22, his soul draws near the pit. Verse 24, uh, deliver him from going down into the pit. Verse 28, he has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit. Verse 30, to bring back his soul uh, from the pit. And so, uh, so, so Elihu is saying the Lord sometimes speaks to us uh, and, and, and convicts us of our sin uh, in order to keep us from further sin and to keep us from growing in pride, to keep us from going down the road of of destruction, so the Lord speaks that way in the conviction of our sin. But He also speaks, says, uh, says Elihu, He does speak in our pain and suffering. Job, you're saying that the Lord has not answered you, but sometimes the the Lord is speaking to us in the suffering itself. Verse 19, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite, the choice is food. His flesh is so wasted away that it can't be seen. His bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. Man, says Elihu, verse 19, is also rebuked with pain on his bed. Now, all the things, we don't have time to go through that, but those verses 19 through 22 uh, throughout uh, are uh, walking with Job and his three friends, every one of those things that uh, Elihu mentions happened to Job. Every one of them. And uh, you look them up in, a, in, your, in your Bible, in your concordance. In fact, sometimes Job uses the exact same words. You know, my flesh uh, sticks to my bones. So you can see it. And So all these things really are things that have happened to, to Job. Now you might ask yourself, well, wait a minute, is Elihu here kind of like the three friends? Is he kind of rubbing salt in the wound. I don't think so. I think Elihu is saying no, uh, but, but he is saying that God has a purpose in such suffering. It's not purposeless. God is somehow speaking. God has his reasons. One of those reasons is God teaching Job to endure by faith. Now, we know that, of course, because, uh, because of the beginning of the book and because of the book of James, which tells us when you think of Job, you are to think of the endurance of Job. So one of the 
purposes of suffering. Elihu believes there's purpose in suffering. God is speaking. We know one of them is simply uh, that Job would be an example for all God's people of what it means to endure, trust the Lord, even in the, in the dark. Suffering can be used for the glory of God. We know that from John 9, where a man uh, born blind, uh, Jesus comes upon a man born blind, and the disciples are all uh, convinced that somehow it's either this man's sin or their parents' sin that, that leads to this. And Jesus said, no, he's, he was, uh, he, that's not the reason. Uh, but it, it's because uh, that the, the glory of God might be revealed in him. John 9, 1-3. So this man's born blind. He goes through these years of being born blind trusting in the Lord despite his blindness. But then one day, Jesus comes and heals him. And if you read the end of the, uh, the book of John, you read through all John 9, what happens all throughout the book of uh, or, or that chapter? It is this man being used by God to praise and exalt Jesus. You know, because the authorities get a hold of him. And they say, well, what's happened here? And I don't know, but uh, somebody healed me. And, uh, you know, his parents don't want to have anything to do with him. And, and he's hauled again before other people. I don't know what happened, but this man healed me. And And so throughout that chapter, Jesus is exalted and God is glorified. Now that blind man, of course, didn't know that was going to happen until it happened. But until that time, he had to trust that his being born blind had a purpose in the uh, providence and ways of a God who's greater then we think this is what Elihu believes. Job, God is speaking, even in your suffering. He's working. Maybe it's about producing character or the fruit of the Spirit in us. As someone once said, God is much more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. Right? In Hebrews 12, the Bible says the Lord, a father, Uh, God treats us as sons, as a father treats his sons, and a father disciplines a son he loves. And there in that passage it says, and so we endure that, we endure what we receive as discipline. Sometimes it's really hard, but we endure it. And why does God send it? So that we might share in his holiness, is what Hebrews 12 says. So so Elihu says to Job, listen, God is speaking. You keep, keep saying that somehow God's not answering you, but you're not recognizing that he's speaking to you right now in your suffering, that you're called to trust him. His purpose is his glory and our growth in holiness. Can you hear him, really, is what Elihu is asking uh, Job. C.S. Lewis famously said, the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin... Both have this property, said Lewis, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. Did you catch that? So the deeper our error and sin is, the, 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 the less and less we suspect it's there, the deeper it goes. They are, said Lewis, masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain, said Lewis, insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, that's what Elihu has been saying, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone, said C.S. Lewis, to rouse a deaf world. 
Job, God's greater than you think. Job, God is speaking, even though, even you don't, even if you don't recognize it. And, and Job, God delivers his people. Now look at this, verse 22, as uh, Elihu is speaking the truth here with Job, for Job in love. Notice what he says. His soul, that is someone who is rebuked in pain, his soul, verse 22, draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. So this isn't good. In the wrong direction. Verse 23. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, or it could be translated one of a thousand, to declare to man what's right for him. And he's merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man, this man, prays to God. And he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy. And he restores to man his, his righteousness. Now what do we have here? Here is Elihu Uh, Speaking about a a mediator, deliverance, rescue, says Elihu, begins with an angel. If there's an angel, now the ancient word angel, of course, just means messenger of God. Uh, Mediator means, again, exactly an advocate, one who will speak on the sufferer's behalf. Now, in one sense, Elihu is a mediator, right? He said already to Job, I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm with you. I want what is best. For you, but you'll remember that Job has spoken in the same way in the book of Job. He's spoken about desiring that someone would speak for him in heaven. He has uh, spoken about how he he knows that his redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. He he knows there's there's he needs help. He needs some kind of media, someone to speak for him. And here, this uh, word from Elihu comes: if if there were an angel, one one out of a thousand, it could be again out of a thousand, meaning here how special and rare and prized this mediator is. Now, who is this mediator? Well, there's a lie who describes him. It's someone who declares what is right, someone who is merciful, and someone who gives the word uh, for this suffering person whom God is speaking to, to be rescued from the pit because a ransom has been found. Doesn't that strike you? Now, of course, this passage doesn't say, well, what is this ransom? What are you talking about, Elihu? <laughs> you know, what is this ransom? Well, we know in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that a ransom, uh, for instance, a man, who, uh, a man who owns an ox, and uh, he's warned about this ox. This ox kills somebody, and he's warned about it. He's got to fence it up, but he lets it go again, and that ox kills somebody again. Uh, that man, the Bible says, uh, should be put to death, but his life can be ransomed. If someone pays the price for his life, uh, then his life may be ransomed. But if you have a murderer, the law says, there is no ransom for a murderer. His life uh, cannot be ransomed. Only God can ransom. Now, how do we know that? Well, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 49. Listen to these words. Truly, Psalm 49 says, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. So a murderer cannot be ransomed. For the ransom of their life is costly 
and can never suffice. And then the psalmist says this, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. That's what the psalmist says. Listen, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. That that ransom is too costly, uh, you know, that he should live on forever and not see the pit. He's headed for the pit. And no man, you see, can ransom him. Only God can do it. That's why when Jesus says, uh, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, you see. That's the wonder of what, of what Jesus does. He does, right, pays a ransom that no man could ever pay. Jesus gives his own life, right, as the spotless Lamb of God. And Elihu says, you know, the, the result of this deliverance through a ransom is, well, you restoration. Your, your youth is uh, renewed, the vigor of your youth, and, and you, you pray to God, and, uh, and you shout for joy. And uh, verse 27, 28, you sing, and, uh, and you confess uh, your sin. And then, and then Elihu simply says this, verse 29, Behold, God does all these things. Twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Job, God's greater than you think. God is speaking to you. And God delivers his people through what Elihu says, um, through a messenger, through a mediator saying, I found a ransom without telling us what that ransom is. But of course, we know what that ransom is. (laughs) We know what it is that keeps your life and my life from the pit. And it's not the price of anything we can pay, not the price any other man can pay, uh, but it was the, the price of the very blood of the Son of God. You need to know this, Job, says Elihu. God delivers his his people, from the pit. For you, Psalm 56, 13 says, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's what Elihu says, that he may be lighted with the light of life. I am, said Jesus, the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here's the thing. Elihu is saying to Job, when we trust him in the dark, he will lead us to the light of life. There is a ransom to keep us from the pit. God does this, says Elihu. He speaks again and again to deliver his people. So Elihu has begun to speak the truth in love to Job, and notice, friends, that uh, here in this chapter, this is the first time that any one of Job's friends actually speaks his name. Job. Job. And this is important, of course. He's with him. He's for him. And he's pointing him to the truth 
of the Lord. This is what we're called to do, isn't it? For each other. When we minister to one another, especially in suffering, to remind one another of who God is. God is much greater than we think. We're with we're not above one another. We're not, we're not uh, below each other. We are with each other. We are for each other. We want the best. And so we speak the truth as God gives us to know the truth. And we especially, much more than Elihu, can say to somebody, listen, there is uh, there's a ransom for those who, <laughs> who, are, who draw near. The, there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Don't doubt, says Elihu Job. God is speaking. But are you hearing what he is saying? And he would say the same to us. Are we hearing what God is speaking so loudly to us as well? Let's pray uh, together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the book of Job, in this chapter, Lord, we've uh, come across many places in this book where there is, uh, there is a, an allusion to a, a mediator, to a, a messenger and and here even to a, a ransom that is found sufficient to keep us from the pit that you are speaking to us. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time and on this side of the cross and the resurrection, oh Lord, we know what that ransom is for no man can pay the price of that ransom for another's life. But Jesus Christ has given his life as a ransom for many that we might be preserved from death. Oh Lord, help us to see you as you are, that you are much bigger, much greater than we think, that you are speaking to us even when when you may appear to be silent. But Lord, you are always speaking, always at work in our life. Help us, Lord, to recognize that work even in the dark, knowing that you will, by your grace, Lead us to the light of life that we too might again sing, uh, that we might rejoice as you restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we have a ransom, we have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.